Roskilde, now a sleepy city just outside of Copenhagen. A place for festivals, museums and commuters, part of the urban sprawl. Home to some 50,000 people, a metropolis in the ancient world, though nothing special today, and tiny compared to its economic powerhouse of a neighbour. The natural harbour here, the reason for the city's initial success, has long been rendered redundant in the modern age. Being far too shallow to receive modern ocean-going shipping vessels like its neighbour, Copenhagen. Yet, during the early Middle Ages, when even the largest ships didn't sit particularly low in the water, Roskilde's shallow fjords didn't matter. In fact, they were a blessing, offering protection from the elements and from enemies. Back then, Copenhagen didn't exist. Not as we know it today, anyway. Instead, the capital and most important city for the fledgling Danish crown was none other than Roskilde. For this settlement, nestled between boggy lowlands and wooded hills, has a long history. Stretching far back, even before the Viking era, into the pre-Christian age of old. Let's turn the clock back some 1,000 years to the middle of the 11th century, to a time when the Scandinavia we know today was first beginning to take shape. Back then, Roskilde had a population of some 5,000 people. It doesn't sound like much, but during the Viking Age, this was one of the largest and most important settlements in all of the kingdoms of the North Sea. Still predominantly a rural society, with scattered farming communities throughout the Danish islands and the Jutland Peninsula, Roskilde was one of just a handful of towns to exist during this time, in part developed as a trading centre, as well as by intentional effort from the Danish crown, ever since they had learnt the art of statehood from their German neighbours to the south, and Anglo-Saxon cousins from across the sea. According to the near-contemporary German chronicler Adam of Bremen, and the slightly later Danish writer Saxo Grammaticus, Roskilde had been founded in the 980s by the Danish king Harald Bluetooth, the son of Gorm the Old, one of the first verifiable kings of Denmark in history. Harald continued his father's work in unifying the kingdom. Yet, despite building massive fortresses all over the land, and adding to the Daneverker fortifications along Denmark's southern border, the greatest threat to his authority still came from the German kingdom to the south. A threat which eventually forced Harald and his family to abandon their previous power base at Jelling on the Jutland Peninsula entirely. We can see why they chose Roskilde as their new lair. Far away from land attacks from Germany, the Danish kings could grow their power in peace, gazing ever outwards to the Baltic and Norwegian coasts. 
Though the town was unfortified at first, it was located in an excellent geographical position at the base of the Roskilde Fjord, in a naturally protected harbour. Thus, in the 980s, taking no more chances on the mainland with the Germans, on a high hilltop overlooking the excellent natural harbour on the north side of the Danish island of Zealand, where ships could lay at anchor below, Harold Bluetooth, a Christian now, built a wooden church consecrated to the Holy Trinity, as well as a royal residence nearby. Yet, there were older links to the place too. Saxo Grammaticus and other medieval Danish sources associate the name, perhaps meaning Rose Spring, with the legendary king Rohr, who possibly lived here during the murky 6th century in the wake of the migration period. Rohr is also known by another name we may be more familiar with, Hrothgar. The Skilding King, famous from the Anglo-Saxon epic Beowulf, as well as Norse sagas and Danish chronicles. Whether this 10th century association is true or not, it certainly imbued the place with a sense of history, and for those who lived there, power. Though Bluetooth was ultimately overthrown by his son Sven Forkbeard in the 980s, the son brought his father's body here to be buried in the church he had built, a tradition that would carry on for centuries. Around the year 1000, it was Forkbeard who would concentrate the power of the Danish crown here, turning the city into a new monarchical and ecclesiastical capital, a position it would hold well into the 15th century. As time went on, and as Danish power waxed and waned, this city would be forced to build defences of its own. Not against the Germans on the mainland, but from Vikings to the sea. It's thought that the approach of hostile fleets would have been signalled by a system of beacons, strategically placed fires lit on high ground from the fjord's mouth at Kattegat in the north all the way down the coast to Roskilde. And make no mistake, the beacons would be lit, for Denmark had many enemies. From the reign of Svein Forkbeard onwards, a ruler who launched attack after attack in all directions, and his son Canute, who did the same, for close to a century to come, the surrounding seas would be a battleground for Viking kings. Hey everybody, sorry to break up the video for a moment, but I've got some announcements to make. I'm Pete Kelly, I'm the one-man team behind this channel. I'm delighted to announce that this video is the first of five that I'll be releasing this month, all of them on Vikings. We've also got a bunch of other channels making videos on the same sorts of topics. Of course, there's our brother channel, Voices of the Past, which is run by my actual brother. We've also got the legendary History with Hilbert, We've got the history of Vikings in both podcast and YouTube format, and we've got Hickma History. Make sure you go and check out all of these fantastic channels and podcast. You can find links to everything in the description below. 
And if you want to see me and my brother David from Voices of the Past traveling around the world to look at historical sites, then go subscribe to my channel, creatively called Pete Kelly, because that's my name. Also, I'll be doing book recommendations, climbing hill forts, visiting castles, and going to ancient monuments. So don't forget to subscribe to that too. Now, back to the 11th century. In the year 1020, Svein's son Canute, newly crowned as king of both Denmark and England, elevated Roskilde to a bishopric, giving it high national status. By 1030, he was the ruler of a North Sea Empire, holding Norway too, and even parts of Sweden under his rule, thus turning Roskilde into one of the most important towns in Northern Europe, eclipsing many of the older emporiums and trade hubs on the Danish peninsula, such as Hedeby and Reeb. During the mid-11th century, it wouldn't have been an unusual sight to see German bishops here. Anglo-Saxon thanes, pagan Swedish swords for hire, Baltic merchants and even Russian travellers coming in off the Baltic Sea. All could be seen walking these streets. The North Sea Empire was to be short-lived however. In 1035, it all came crashing down and Canute would live to see some of it crumble. His oldest son and appointed successor in Norway, Sven, was overthrown in 1035, dying in exile at Roskilde not long afterwards. Just a few months later, he was followed to the grave by Canute, ushering in a succession crisis all over the North Sea Kingdoms. A series of wars that would only come to an end some 50 years later. By 1050, Gorm the Old's line had come to an end. The Yelling Dynasty was dead, and in its place had arisen a dizzying array of Viking kings and warlords to replace them. All battling it out for a small slice of the leftovers. Now, one of those kings was on the warpath. Only recently arrived back in his native Norway after a long exile in service to Constantinople's Varangian Guard. Having seen battle in far-off Anatolia and even the Holy Land, rich and confident with an elite force of hardened warriors behind him and an impressive fleet of longships, Harald Hardrada had returned and Denmark was about to burn. At Roskilde, the man who had inherited the Danish throne, son of one of Canute's henchmen, and by most accounts, the best man for the job, didn't know what was about to hit him. He was Svein Estridsson, and though not related to the Yelling monarchs through the male line, he was at least a Danishman, which was more than could be said for his Norwegian predecessor, Magnus the Good. A man whose claims on Denmark were now being pressed by the new king, Harald. By 1050, 
the Norwegian fleet arrived at the trading emporium of Hedeby, situated in the southern part of Jutland, near the ancient border of the Danaverka, the most famous port of its kind in Denmark, with a rich and storied history dating back well into the 700s. Hardrada was not a sentimental man. Caught seemingly unawares, the townspeople stood little chance. What happened next survives both in the archaeological record and in the saga tradition. Stuff, a Norwegian skald or court poet, whose words are recorded by Snorri Sturluson, has the following to say about the fight. Burnt in anger from end to end was Hedeby. High rose the flames from the house, when, before dawn, I stood upon the stronghold's arm. For Hardrada had learnt a thing or two about burning ships from his time in service to the Byzantine emperors, setting some of his on fire and sending them headlong into the town to do his work for him. The charred remains of which were found at the bottom of the Schlei during recent excavations. Next on the agenda was Aarhus, put to the torch, its goods plundered by the Norwegian fleet who just managed to escape Svein and make it home. For the next 14 years to come, war raged on, as Hardrada periodically ravaged the Danish coasts, undertaking a perennial scorched earth campaign against his rival. All the while, over on the other side of Jutland, though every now and again Hardrada came within his grasp for the most part, all Svein Estridsson could do was fortify and wait for his moment to strike. But he was a patient man. At around the same time as Hardrada's marauders harried the Danish coastline, putting many of its most important settlements to the sword, an elaborate system of defensive barriers was established on the Roskilde Fjord. It was finally time for the Danish kings, always previously on the offensive, to protect their capital. But how does one fortify a sea? Well, these ships, excavated from the 1950s onwards and now housed in the Roskilde Ship Museum, have opened a unique doorway into the early medieval world and the workings of a royal Danish sea defence during the height of the Viking Age. some of the finest examples of longships ever found in history. In life, these vessels were used for trade, defence, fishing and war. And in death, they would go on protecting their people. Around 20 kilometres out from the Roskilde harbour, near the town of Skoldalev, at the point named Peberenden, where the channel inland is narrowest, three of these vessels, numbered one, three and five, were towed out and scuttled at some point after 1050. There they were filled with stones and sunk deep into the sailing channel, forming a wall under the water, 
The Skoldalev ships are one of the finest examples of Viking Age sea defences found anywhere. No longer would these ships sail on the high seas, now forming permanent and floating obstacles to slow down and stop an attacking army, and to give enough time to raise a defending force. Along with rock-filled boxes, in time, the Skoldalev ships formed a massive coherent defence system that could even close off the fjord entirely if necessary. And the defenders weren't finished, not by a long shot. As long as Hardrada reigned in Norway, they were under threat. And after a number of years, once the original ships had sunk low enough into the mud, another two were scuttled on top of them. Evidence of other defences have been found too, such as stakes pushed into the ground and platforms along the sides of the fjord for guardsmen to occupy. As well as to control traffic in the inner fjord, their aim was to protect the town from attacking forces from the sea. Forcing any potential foes to enter a bottleneck filled with fierce Danish warriors lining both sides of the shore. Though the two Viking countries of Denmark and Norway would remain locked in conflict for decades to come, there is no evidence that Hardrada ever came here. He was far too cunning for that knowing that he and his men would face a barrage of Danish spears and arrows if they did so. Certainly on the way out, if not the way in. And besides, he had a greater prize in mind. After besting Svein in a huge sea battle in 1062, the two finally made peace in 1064. And two years later, Harold embarked on the final venture of his career to England. In that same year, what remained of Hedeby was finally destroyed for good after a raid by Slavic warriors from the south. Today, all that remains of this once prosperous trading centre is an earthen rampart and a Viking museum. Yet, Roskilde had survived. Though its troubles weren't over yet, a new generation of defences would soon be built on top of the old. On the 25th of September, 1066, near a bridge just outside the city of York, the greatest English victory ever won against an invading Viking army was achieved. Just weeks later, however, the architect of that fight, Harold Godwinson, was dead, killed by a second invading army, this one from another Viking-influenced land, Normandy. Only around 25 Norwegian ships managed to limp back home after their defeat at Stamford Bridge. And in the wake of Harald Hardrada's death, the tables were turned as Svein Estridsson briefly contemplated an invasion 
of his own. Ultimately, Svein would choose a different path. Svein had been born in England, content with being King of Denmark and concentrating his efforts on England. Making peace with Harold's son Olaf in order to wage war against William the Conqueror, a man he saw as wholly illegitimate. Nevertheless, though this decade-long period after 1066 is usually seen as a peaceful time for Danish-Norwegian relations, there was a brief moment when war was on the cards once more. We can see this tension in archaeology and in the written record. By 1075, we have direct evidence for a further strengthening of the sea wall at Roskilde. With two large additional ships, Skuldelev II and Skuldelev VI, being sunken into the defence. It seems that at this time, there was reason to fear an attack. But from where? The new Norman overlords in England were busy putting down revolts and fending off periodical Danish attacks. Of course, this new threat came from the north, from Norway. In 1078, we find an extraordinary surviving letter from Pope Gregory VII. This miraculously surviving document provides a brief glimpse into both the psychology of 11th century kings and the confused geopolitical situation Scandinavians again found themselves in. When incorporated into the other surviving accounts from this time, we can arrive at a somewhat basic interpretation of events. In 1076, Svein Estridsson finally died. After a reign of close to 30 years, he'd outlived most of his rivals, enjoyed an extraordinarily long lifetime, and left a substantial brood of warrior sons to squabble over the kingdom left behind. Many of these, with names such as Eric Evergood, Harold Hen, Canute, and Olaf Hunger, had seen service during Svein's many ultimately unsuccessful campaigns against England. Far from being over, the Viking Age lived on in these warlike men, who often went out to war on dragon-headed longboats. Initially, the son who came out on top was Harold Hen, a shrewd man content to give up portions of kingly power in order to obtain the support of regional lords. Of course, there were many who opposed the succession, chief amongst them Harold's younger brother, Canute, a warrior lord every bit the embodiment of his earlier namesake. Canute had been born back in around 1042. He is first recorded by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as an important member of Svein's 1069 campaign in England, and again in 1075, this time in a more senior role, hinting at a superior reputation as a war leader to his brother Harold, also suggested by other victories in Scandinavia recorded by the scald Kalf Manneson. On his way back to Denmark in 1075, 
Canute stopped off in Flanders, a Frankish county staunchly opposed to Norman interests. Whilst there, he managed to secure support for a future campaign against England. All he had to do was take the Danish throne. In the next year, however, everything fell apart for Canute when his brother succeeded to the throne. Far from going away quietly, Canute went north, at first seeking refuge in Sweden, before moving on to the Norwegian court, where it is thought by many historians that he roused up support for a campaign against Denmark. For Norway was ruled by Harald Hardrada's son, Olaf, a figure who would become a firm ally of Canute. Olaf, a capable soldier, had been present during the Stamford Bridge campaign in 1066 to see his father die, just as his father had been at Stiklestad in 1030 to see his benefactor Olaf Haraldsson die. Ultimately, though tensions were high, the assault on Roskilde never came. At least, no evidence of it exists anyway. Harald died in April 1080, allowing Canute to succeed him without lifting a finger. On his accession, Canute married Adela, a daughter of Count Robert I of Flanders, a marriage he probably had in mind since 1075. And together, they set about their efforts to invade England. Finally, in 1085, backed up by his brother-in-law Robert of Flanders, and his ally Olaf of Norway, Canute called his banners together, raising one of the largest armies seen in Denmark in generations. Ultimately, however, Denmark's old enemy would rear its head again, curbing any ideas of an invasion of England. To the south, the most powerful ruler in Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, had designs of his own. And motive in the form of Rudolf of Rheinfelden, an estranged nobleman who'd sought refuge at Canute's court. In delaying his invasion of England, whilst he waited to see what Henry's move would be, Canute was also reluctant to allow his peasant levies to return back to their homes to till the fields for winter. Crippled by indecision, in early 1086, full-scale revolt broke out. At first, the king fled to Schleswig and eventually to Odense. There, in July 1086, according to the chronicler Elmoth of Canterbury, he was trapped inside a church along with his brother Benedict and 17 followers, and cut down before the altar. Two decades later, the king being made a saint by the Pope, his image ultimately gracing the walls of some of Christendom's most holy sites. Robert, the Count of Flanders, meanwhile, put the resources he would have used to invade England to a different use, travelling far to the east, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And, in a brief precursor to events to come, 
in providing much-needed military support to the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenos against the Seljuk Turks, a people originating in Central Asia, currently ravaging imperial lands. But that's a story for another day. Canute IV was the last Scandinavian monarch to seriously attempt an invasion of England. By 1085, the Viking Age was mostly over. Scandinavian power brokers now looked to the papacy in Rome and continental European rulers for allegiances and marriage proposals. Yet the sons of Svein Estridsson would continue to rule. The next kings, Olaf Hunger and Eric Evergood respectively, both having participated in their fair share of Viking raids in their youths. Yet, for Roskilde, the times of trouble were over. Both these kings were allies of Norway, who had spent time at the Norwegian court. It was across the North Sea with Norman England that a new Cold War would be fought. Though ultimately, an entirely new frontier was about to open up. Just as Scandinavian monarchs now stood as equals with European continental rulers, soon enough they would follow in their footsteps to the east, in conquest and in pilgrimage, for the Scandinavian world was about to open up to an even wider stage. In 1103, following a drunken brawl which led to the deaths of four of his men, King Eric Evergood took it upon himself to go to the Holy Land on pilgrimage, recently conquered by the armies of the First Crusade, including the Count of Flanders, Robert the Frisian's son, Robert the Crusader. Travelling down through the river systems of Eastern Europe in a great procession, Eric made it to the court of the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenus, by now used to putting up European magnates. Soon, however, Eric fell ill, but insisted on travelling on anyways. Upon arriving on Cyprus, he died, being buried at Paphos. His wife, Queen Bodale, however, pushed on, making it all the way to Jerusalem before she passed away, being laid to rest on the Mount of Olives. The Viking Age was mostly over. The Age of Crusading had begun. <laughs>